This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Good morning. My name is Greg, and today we'll be reading from Matthew 5, uh, chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, which can be found on page 810 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. So page 810, Matthew 5. Uh, while you're turning there, uh, we want to take time. Kiddos, you can go ahead and be dismissed. Um, Mom and Dad, if you have not uh, signed them up, you can go back down to the entrance where you first came in, get them signed up, and then you can um, take them off to where they need to go. There will be people back there. Um, it's ages three to five. So kiddos, you can go. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Hey, thanks, Greg and Charles. Thanks, Anna Logan. Hey, kids, thank you. You did great. Um, and tech crew, you guys are amazing. Thanks for fighting that with us this morning. Hey, let me uh, introduce myself one more time. My name is Chris, if we didn't meet. Um, I'm excited to jump into this text. And let me just, by way of hospitality, orient you with where we are in this text. Maybe it's your first time in church, or you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, or maybe you've heard this passage a ton of times. This is part of a larger sermon Jesus is teaching, and so this would have been one sermon. So we're taking just a few verses of that one sermon. So it can be interesting to break up the Sermon on the Mount like that. And so any good sermon, you should be able to talk about one part of it, and it still makes sense. But you do kind of lose something when you pull one portion out of context. And so a passage like this, if we're not careful, we, we just miss some stuff that's really important as we think about why Jesus says this right here. So the Sermon on the Mount is not a string of individual pearls that we're excited about and we teach about anger and we, in isolation, we teach about anxiety and isolation. He's talking in a long-term way about what the kingdom of God is about and what it means for us that he has come and what he's doing in our hearts through the kingdom of God. And he started with the Beatitudes, which are not list of things that you should do so that God would love you. They are an invitation to everybody to come into the kingdom. Whether you're broken or you feel poor in spirit or you feel meek or you feel low or you're being persecuted, wherever you are, you're welcome into the kingdom. That's the way he starts. And, and as he does that, he actually has this very provocative sentence where he says, if you're persecuted for my namesake. So Jesus starts to put himself kind of at the center, not just of the sermon, but of reality to say, if you are facing persecution because of me, you're blessed. So you would like in the crowd listen a little bit like people don't normally talk like that. If, if I said that, you should like be concerned, right? We're on the edge of a cult. If I start talking about if people disparage you because of me, like that's a, a, not a good thing for a human to say. So when Jesus says it, they begin to lean in. And he goes on to talk about being salt and light. And these are images of God's covenant people, of his community. So he's saying this is the kingdom of God. It's advancing like salt and light. You are the people of God. And so as he's kind of named some things that kind of stand out to us as different, he comes to this section not to switch gears, but to explain a little bit. He wants to say, hey, what I'm teaching you is not a brand new idea. What I'm explaining to you about the kingdom of God is what God's word has always been about. So we talked last week of verse 17 that, that when Jesus came, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. Because if you're in the crowd, you're going like, man, is he teaching something brand new? Are we shifting some gears here? Are we going a different direction? And Jesus says, no, no, no. I didn't come to abolish or set aside the way you've always lived. I came to fulfill it. And it makes a little more sense if you realize they would have been asking, wait, this is upside down. This is different. We've been hearing a different way of relating to God, or at least that's what we thought. Jesus is saying, no, let me actually tell you, God's word has always been about. This is the way God's always related to people. It's always been by grace. It's always been for those who are on the bottom. God has always worked like this, and I came to fulfill the law. 
And he'll go on in the rest of this section to explain how that can be possible. And then we, we see him really unpack the rest of this in the sermon. And so it's easy to see like hints of verse 20 where he says, Hey, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never come into the kingdom. That, that goes into the next verse which says, Hey, you've heard it said from old, don't murder in verse 21. But I'm telling you, it's deeper than that. It's about your anger. Hey, you've heard it said don't commit adultery. Right? These are the big ten But I'm telling you, it's actually deeper. God wants to do more than just control your outward behavior. He wants your heart so much so that lust is actually dealt with and dismantled. You've heard it said that you shouldn't get divorced, but I'm telling you that I have a heart for people who have been caught up in the abuse that happens sometimes in marriage. He he unpacks for us not dismantling the law, but actually fulfilling it and filling it out. So I said that to you this morning because what Jesus is doing is talking about fulfillment and continuity, not something brand new, which should lean us in to say, Jesus, would you please help me understand how to apply what God has always been doing? This is not like a brand new teaching. This is connecting dots for us of what God's been doing way back in the garden when he promised to send a sacrifice and a substitute. It's what God's been doing through the sacrificial system and all the images of the the fact that we needed something to pay the price for our sin. God's doing something in all the cleanliness laws that were really detailed and very, very specific to talk about what it means for us to be unclean before a holy God and how he's made provision for that. He's taking this timeless truth and not dismantling it or abolishing it. He says, I'm actually coming to show you how it all points to me. Okay, so the text itself is actually fairly simple, I think. There's not a ton of tricky grammar. Our challenge isn't in understanding this text. It's in putting it in context and then owning the fact that we actually have some resistance to what he says. So the teaching, I think, is actually fairly clear. But I think we are in danger of resisting what is clear for a couple of reasons. One is an interpretation reason, and one is a reason rooted around authority. But I wanted to kind of put you in context so you don't think I'm just pulling some random passage to push the Bible on you. This is God himself saying, hey, what I've been doing is a faithful expression of love for you. It's consistent. It's beautiful. You should be drawn into it. And what I'm showing you is it always was about me. I didn't come to abolish the law we talked last week, but to fulfill it. So if that's kind of a a framework hospitality-wise to kind of put us in what would have probably been just a few minutes into a sermon at this point, let me stop and pray and ask God to speak to us specifically around this issue of resistance. Because he says in verse 20, like, hey, if you don't exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. If you know anything about the Bible or biblical history, you, you know what he's just said there is you have to be dang near perfect to come into the kingdom. And you should think about your last week and go, well, I wasn't perfect. So, so either you are ignoring this and resisting it, or it has your attention. And what I want to do is put it on display for us so it gets our attention and we actually lean in rather than dismiss it because of interpretation or an understanding of authority. All right, let me just pray for us then and ask God to help us in that specific space. Jesus, right now, would you do what you were doing with that crowd as you explained what it meant to be part of your kingdom. And, and it would have shocked them. It would have, it would have sounded in some ways too good to be true. In some ways it would have been a threat to their own righteousness and the, and the credibility they had built on their own. In some ways it would have probably been confusing. And yet having you standing there explaining this would have been such a beautiful thing. So, so we are in a much lesser situation as I'm trying to explain this. So would you still show your beauty in light of even human frailty, and in light of even our own resistance. So, so Jesus, we ask that you, by your Spirit, because the Father loves us, would you help us own our resistance to you in a way that we actually begin to turn towards you? God, God, would you help us own the fact that sometimes we read a passage like this and just blink our eyes and keep moving rather than stop and ask, what do I do with a text like this? So God, would you meet us in this space, and would you encounter us we ask in Jesus name amen amen all right hey my outline is simply going to be what does the text say and then why do we resist it to get us into it I want to bring you to a grocery store scene that you've been at a hundred times sometimes you're the main character of this scene and sometimes you're watching this take place in somebody else's life it is that dreaded moment where a child begins to whine and complain 
and they're not with mom, and they're shopping, and the kid wants a snack or wants something, and mom's trying to bring them along, and the kid's laying on the floor. So sometimes, again, you, sometimes you starred in this scene. Sometimes you laid on the floor in the supermarket, no judgment. Sometimes you're the main character trying to bring the kid along, and sometimes you're watching with judgment on the outside as you see this whole thing take place. So I would never let that happen if that was my child. Like You've been in all of those scenes, right? And what normally happens is mom or dad will say something like, brilliant, don't make me count to three. And then what happens next? The kid doesn't go, oh my gosh, that's right, I get up. No, no, what happens? You begin to count. Why? One, nothing happens. Two, nothing happens. Three, nothing happens. Then what takes place? I said, get off the ground, la, 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 la. And then now the kid gets up and starts running, right? So it waits until mom and dad go through the count and then elevate their voice in such a way that everybody now is looking and it gets a little bit scary. And then the kid knows, oh, you're serious about this. The counting, not serious. All the warnings, not serious. It wasn't until you raised your voice and everybody's looking and I saw that shade of red in your face that I realized you were actually serious about this. You guys remember this scene? You started in this scene. You've been a part of this scene. Hey, I thought about that this week because I thought about this text and I thought, could it function for us like Jesus counting to three? Hey, this is super, super important. One, two, three, and we just keep going. We actually wait until there's some sort of crisis sometimes for us to actually listen to God's word. Because what he says here is actually very, very challenging. It's beautiful and it's challenging. And I'm going to guess as Greg read it, it went right over your head and it missed your heart. You didn't go, oh my gosh, I have to hear this. Like, did your blood pressure raise? Did you feel cortisol begin to fire through your veins? Like you're going, I have to hear what to do with verse 20. I'm guessing you didn't. I'm guessing it's either familiar and so you know it and you went past it or maybe it just seems confusing and you let it go by you. Not because you didn't understand it, but because you feel like there's no way he can be serious about this. Seriously, like none of the laws have changed. None of them should be relaxed. All the little bitty parts of the law, those are still in play. No way. And so you hear Jesus say something and you just assume he's not serious And you wait until he starts talking about judgment or something like that before he actually gets your attention. Hey, what I want to do this morning is frame it for us like that because I think we're in danger because of either familiarity or some confusion with interpretation or just a baseline human resistance to authority. We hear a text like this and we often just don't respond to it. So, So that's my premise, right? I think you heard this and because of where we are as a culture with suspicion of authority, you tend to reinterpret this around your own situation rather than take it at face value and ask, what do I do with this? You've already said why it doesn't mean what it means before I ever stood up. Because we have a resistance to authority and we have some challenges with interpretation. What I want to do is like not have a parent count to three and start screaming, but just go, hey, can you dial in here? This is really, really important. In fact, it's beautiful. The parent is trying to get the kid off the floor in the supermarket, not because they hate him, not because they're trying to destroy them, not trying to rob them of any joy because they're trying to teach them how to live in life. And go, hey man, this is not the way we're going to do this. Like you're not going to get what you want except what normally happens. You give them what you want. So parents, you're actually training them not to listen, right? Jesus doesn't do that in this section. He's not training us not to listen. What we do with our own hearts that puts us in a spot where we're not listening has way more to do with us than it does about him. And saying that is actually an invitation for you to examine your heart and ask hey, what do I do when I hit places in the Bible that I disagree with? What do I do when I hit places in the Bible that I don't understand? What do I do when I hit places in the Bible that seem a little bit confusing? Do I just turn the page and keep going, or do I stop and say, what do I do with a text like this? I want to just stop this morning and say, hey, what do we do with this? So, So Stephen did verse 17 last week. He took us to Galatians, actually, to talk about how the law was a tutor to get us to Christ. It's teaching us about our need. It's teaching us what God is like. It's teaching us about the consequences of our sin. It's teaching us that we actually couldn't keep the law so that we were spring-loaded to know that we needed a Savior. And all of the failure and all the blood and all the sacrifices and all the pain of all the centuries set us up to know that we need a Savior. That's what the law functioned to do. So that's what we talked about last week. And so I want us to pick up in verses 18 and 19. We're actually going to slow down. We'll do 20 after Easter as we think about what does it mean here to have our righteousness surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. But go with me now in verse 18. What I want to do is just walk through and say, all right, what does this text actually say? Let me just explain it, and then we'll talk about our 
resistance to it. Look at me in verse 18 of chapter 5. It says, for truly I say to you, this is him saying, hey, listen, this is, this is real. He's not counting to three. He's just saying, hey, this is, pay attention here. This is real. What I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, which when will that happen? That's the end of the ages. It's not with the closing of the canon. It's till the end of the ages, until heaven and earth pass away, till all this thing melts down, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. All right, so maybe you've heard this from other translations. The NIV says not, not an iota or the stroke of a small stroke of a pen. KJV is where we get this, a jot or a tittle. He's talking about small little spaces in the Hebrew writing. The iota was almost like a, a comma that's elevated, almost like an apostrophe in the text. It's little bitty. And this dot or this stroke of a pen or this tittle is it's like a little bit of a leg on a letter. So think about grammar school when you're learning how to write, and they would teach you how to make an O with a circle. And they would say, now to make an A, you just give Mr. O a little leg, right? And you just pull down a little bit. That little leg is a tittle. So what Jesus is saying is, hey, even the smallest places of the law, the things that, that almost go unnoticed, but they're actually whole letters or they change the meaning of something, those things will not change until the end of the age. So it's actually a great illustration. Jesus is an amazing preacher. He gives a great illustration to them to say, hey, I know you're kind of dialed into all the big stuff of life and you're focused on kind of the large commands. Can I tell you the way God's heart is, the way he's been teaching you about who he is, the way he's been romancing you all these years is such that even the small things in the law, the things that seem really insignificant, the stuff that you're tempted just to like cruise through real fast, even those things won't pass away until God accomplishes everything he set out to do. Right? He's saying these small little pieces are part of the grand picture and portrait. So I thought about how to help you understand this. I think we normally come to the scriptures with this question of what do I have to do to please God? And we begin to mount kind of a list. And we think kind of in order and logically, so we put them in columns. And scholars do this to help us understand the law, but sometimes in our hearts, I think we can do it to get away from some of the law. So we put things in like moral categories, we put them in civil categories, we put them in poetry, we put them in commands, we put them in stories, and we tend to take the law and separate it out and kind of categorize it, right? We're good eighth grade science students that, that kind of categorize different parts of the law. What the Hebrews understood and what Jesus understood was all of the law fit together as one giant portrait. Uh, the Hebrews wouldn't understand if you talked to them about simple commands that were disconnected to the heart or stories that were not commands or, or poetry that didn't elicit some sort of response from you, right? For the Hebrew mind, all of it fit together. It was all part of God communicating to us who he was, who we were, what we needed, how he loved us. So, so the narrative stories and the details of those stories, they're not just flippant things that happened, although they're historically accurate. God is weaving a story for his people. So when you and I read that story, we can find ourselves there. And in the details and minutia of the story, we realize God cares about the details of your life. What's happening and things that just feel really mundane are actually very, very significant. And God shows up in the most mundane of places. You thought you're just like reading a history annual, but, but God has actually put in his word because the law and the prophets is a summary way of saying the whole thing. He's put the whole Old Testament together where even the small little details, the stuff that's almost unnoticeable, that little leg on an O, things that small still really matter. Well, well why do they matter? They matter because God's saying, hey, everything I've been telling you, I came to fulfill so all of it actually points towards me. That's why it matters. And none of it's going to pass away until the very end. So, so you're intended to keep looking at it. So it's like a painting or a portrait. And if you were to zoom all the way in like on a photograph and like zoom, 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 and get all the way down to the pixels, you see like those little bitty dots that actually represent the entire picture. Now, I don't think Jesus had digital photography from our phones in his mind when he said this. But I think for us to understand, to say, hey, those little pixels actually make up the larger portrait. So where you and I are tempted to just dismiss some details or say there's no way, that's, that's too specific. Because right? there's some stuff that's kind of interesting and maybe like a little like nauseating sometimes. He talks about like cleanliness laws and what happens if certain kinds of pus, if certain colors coming out of certain kinds of hair and you're like, dude, I haven't had lunch yet. Like, don't, don't do that to me. And in that space, what he's saying is even that's not going to pass away. 
Why? Because even that little detail, the way that God cares about the hairs on your head and what happens when they get infected and what happens when they discharge something unclean, God cares about you at that level. And so he's giving us an interpretive framework to say what God has said in his law is still applicable because what it came to do, it is still doing to point us to the way God loves us. So he says, until heaven and earth pass away, till everything melts down in the cosmos, the smallest little promises, the little details of my story, the way that I've walked with people, those things won't pass away until everything has been accomplished. And now so much of it was pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus, to our need for our cleanliness to be taken care of, to the need for us to have our sins kind of cleansed and washed through the blood of Christ. Right? So, so many of it has been accomplished in the death of Christ, but it won't be until Christ comes back into heaven and earth are over that all of it is fully accomplished, that God won't be finished communicating to us about his love for us and what it means to respond to that love until the very, very end. And in the meantime, Jesus is saying, the way I've written my word through the Holy Spirit, the what's been passed down to you, God's word to you is so intact, it's so meaningful, it's so purposeful, even the smallest little bit won't fall apart. Because Jesus sees the law different than you and I do. Jesus doesn't see the law as this list of requirements that we have to do to please God to get him off our back. He sees it as a gateway to flourishing. It's why Psalm 119 talks about the law in terms of like honey and, and nourishment and beauty and poetry. It elicits this emotional response to think about the gift of God's word to us. right? And most of us, when we read the Old Testament, at the very least, are confused, and sometimes we're bored, and the, the, the Hebrews would have no idea what was going on in that moment for you. They would say, no, 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 in these little details. God's communicating his love to you, right? So he, he labors in this space to say the smallest things won't pass away until everything passes away, which is huge, right? That's verse 18. It says, therefore, because that's true, then this just logically follows. Because not one little part of it is going to pass away, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands, whoever says, hey, that part, not a big deal, don't worry about it. You know, you can just skip over that. Whoever relaxes one of the least parts of the law, which is different than interprets it in light of Jesus. Those are different. Relaxing the law and saying it's not important is very different than saying that's a window into how we need Jesus. That's pointing us to something. Don't stop at the sign. Go all the way to where it's pointing you. That, that's what Jesus is saying in verse 17. He came to fulfill it. But he said, if you relax one of the least of these commandments and you teach others to do the same, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think this is a Jewish idiom. I don't think he's saying this is how you climb the ranks. And if you're teach a whole bunch of stuff and do a whole bunch of stuff, then you actually are in a space where God loves you more and you're more special in the kingdom. I think he's saying, hey, this is the most important thing you could do. If you want to be great, if you want to give your life to something great, give your life to the word of God and teaching other people who God is and what it means to follow him. That is the most important thing you could do. I think that's what the idiom, the idiom actually means. Right? It would be kind of confusing to think about going from grace to now ranking each other. There will be rewards in heaven, but all of them are rooted in God's grace. Right? We will worship God for the grace he gave us to obey him. So he's not talking rank here as much as he's talking about primacy and importance. And it just makes sense. And then this is going to pass away. So, so man, you keep teaching other people all of this. Don't relax even one of the little things. Even the thing about the hairs with the pussy sores and the uncleanness. Yeah, yeah, even that thing, man. Do your devotions from there to realize, oh, that is my heart. That infected space, that's actually a place where I have need. That's a place where God wants to, to meet me. And the details of that, of, of my entire body, that one little space, God noticing that, God's mindful of and cares about the places of my life. Yeah, do your devotions from the cleanliness laws from Leviticus. And do it in such a way that it blows your mind of God's love that he would move towards someone who is so unclean they shouldn't even be touched. And what does Jesus do? He reaches to the leper who's unclean, and before he cleanses him, he touches him. He fulfills the law. He fulfills all of those laws and commands. And let me just stop for a second and give you a commercial. This is actually fairly complicated. And I'm talking like at the 10,000-foot level. 
I know whole denominations are formed out of your interpretation of what you do with the law, what's still applicable to do moral and civil and ceremonial, all that. I want to do a whole sermon. I think it will serve us as a people to give us some more framework on how do you engage the Old Testament. But, but at the big picture level, what I want you to see is that Jesus is teaching us, hey, it still applies primarily because it's still pointing to me. So to engage the law of God, not as a brand new thing or a thing that's been set aside, but as something that's fulfilled in Christ, has it come alive for you in ways that you see God's love and him romancing you the way he has for millennium his people. And he's mindful of the details of your life and he's made sacrifice for places where you were broken. And he, he actually gave you instructions on how to live in a world that would actually make you flourish. So, so don't relax this, don't, don't step it aside, and actually and don't teach other people to do this either. And as I prayed for you, I thought, I just kind of own the fact that, that we have a way of teaching both in ways that are like verbal and ways that are observed, right? We're amazing kind of observers. Even this little story of this grocery store scene, kids have interpreted what you really mean, not what you're saying in that space, Right? So kids know you don't actually mean it until you start screaming at them, even though you're saying it, you mean it. You keep saying, I mean it, I mean it, I mean it. And they go, yeah, that means you don't mean it because I've watched you and that doesn't actually mean that you mean it until you start screaming. Tracking with me? Let me give you another example. My dad became a believer when I was in middle school. Uh, before that, uh, man, he, was, he loved us, he cared about us, but I feel like I've had kind of two dads. He actually struggled with smoking most of his life, and I don't think smoking is necessarily a sin, but it had a grip on my dad in ways that were addictive. So for him, it was a real barrier. He struggled with shame after he became a Christian. He struggled for a long time. But I have this distinct memory when I'm about third grade, my dad coming home from work, and he's going to do this lesson about how we shouldn't smoke and why we shouldn't smoke. And so he made me smoke cigarettes until I vomited and threw up. And then he said, hey, so that, so cigarettes are bad, right? Don't smoke. All right, I'm outside smoking. No lie. It happened exactly like that. My dad makes me smoke till I vomit to teach me not to smoke, and goes, okay, you got the lesson? Great, I'm gonna go outside, and I'll be back there smoking. And I remember thinking as third grader, like, we're heading the toilet going, I don't know about this as a life lesson. I don't know if this is the best way to instruct your child, even as I'm heaving now and seeing my insides in the toilet going, I don't know if this is a, a compelling instruction from my wise, wise father telling me not to do something that he's gonna actually go and do. So when Jesus says, hey, those who teach them and actually teach others to obey them, remember, it's your life as well. So here's the deal. We make the gospel plausible to each other when we practice out the commands of God. Right? We make the gospel actually sound like good news and the law of God feel like good news when we actually follow the commands of God the way that Christ fulfilled them for us to actually apply them in our relationship. It's not just what we teach, because you know this, right? You've been around the boss who did employee appreciation week and said all these great things about how we're all equal and the guy on the bottom is as important as the guy on the top. And then you didn't experience that any other day except on that one day. You, you know that words can often be hollow. So what Jesus came to do was to actually show us the law of God on display, right? To live it out, to fulfill it perfectly, to actually show us what it meant to live under the beautiful flourishing of the Father. He didn't see the law as this thing that was restrictive, as this thing that held him back, as this thing that actually would harm him or keep him from joy. He saw it as the gateway to relate to his father, and therefore it was good and beautiful. It was the way that he would actually experience the favor of the father, not because God would bless him because he did so good, but because it's the way God designed the world to work. Jesus has a very different view of the law than we do. And in that space, what we see is that Jesus is helping us own the fact that we're resistant to it by actually dealing with our resistance in his own body. He died on the cross to actually make a way for the suspicion that you and I have against God to be dealt with. He made a way for us to actually encounter Christ, encounter the Father, encounter the Spirit, encounter the sacrifice, encounter the cleanliness, encounter all the rules and regulations in a way that would liberate us not hold us back because you and I have a problem with authority and we're fairly suspicious of these things. So, so just to help us a little bit, here's what one scholar said about this, about Jesus teaching, hey, this, this idea of you teaching this doesn't mean this is how you get ranked, but how you actually lead towards flourishing. He says this, is Jesus reversing his earlier teaching that we enter the kingdom of God through grace? Surely not. Rather, he is saying that our attitude towards the law of God is an index of our attitude toward God himself. If we treat the law lightly and encourage others to do so, like if we have a subtle conviction 
then with their consistent attitudes of antagonism towards God's law, we show that we are strangers to the promise of the new covenant in Christ. But if we love and keep even the least of the Lord's commands and we encourage others to do them as well, like we have settled attitudes and convictions of obedience, that is the sure mark that we love Christ and that we belong to his kingdom. The law is not the basis on which we merit salvation, but it does provide a test to distinguish between those who belong in the kingdom of salvation and those who are outside of it. Jesus is saying, hey, because I came to fulfill it, of course it's not passing away. And even the small pieces of that, they're not passing away. So the logic is tight then. Therefore, obey them and teach others to do the same. Don't relax and say, God didn't really mean that. So now just stop and go to your life. You're going, Chris, why are you yelling at us? Stop and go, hey, think about your life. Think about the things you read about that you just say, he doesn't mean that. And here's this kind of confusing, right? There are texts that put eating shellfish and your sex life in the same paragraph. And so you go like, well, surely he can't mean both of those. Because you know shellfish and sex are different things. You know they belong in different columns and categories. So you get a little bit confused. But here's the heart of an obedient follower of Jesus. They ask, what do I do with a text like that? Either about shellfish or, or about sex, rather than there's no way God could mean that. Either about shellfish or about sex. And I think we dismiss either one of those categories based on where we are, our background, and what we're longing for that we think will make us happy and satisfied. So so the question is not, how do I interpret that? The rest of the New Testament gives me that. We're going to walk through that in a couple of weeks. It's me going, what do I do with that? And I want to put in front of you that you have a habit of saying, I don't have to do anything with that. That's something that I passed, or it's archaic, or it's beyond me, or it's unnecessary, or it's too small, or it's too weird, or it's too obscure, or it's too ancient. It's not very progressive. It's not very modern. Therefore, I don't have to do anything with it. And rather than asking, how do I interpret such a difficult text? We just say, hey, I get to stand over that text and say, it no longer applies. But what Jesus is saying is, no, no, every single thing, even the shellfish passages, we have to interpret them, but they still apply. They don't apply necessarily in your dietary ways, but they apply and apply in what they point you to that help you know what it actually means to walk with God. So then what about your sex life as well? Is, is that gone away or is that pointing you to someone else? Could your sex life actually be pointing you to something about God that it tells you why sex outside the bounds of a monogamous marriage is what is out of bounds? Because it, it violates the covenant love that God gives to us, right? So what if actually the same way you read a shellfish passage saying, how does this teach me about Christ? You read a sex passage and say, what does this teach me about Jesus as well, how would that change how you read the scriptures? Jesus is just saying in front of his followers, hey, do you want to be inside the kingdom? You want to know what's actually most important? It's not something brand new. It's looking at what God has always been saying and seeing me as the fulfillment of it so you can actually worship me and follow me. Because Jesus knows the law is how we get to freedom. Even though it first crushes us with our inability to meet it, So we go to the one who satisfied the law for us. And in that space, we actually have freedom. So what we'll talk about, I know you kind of understand that it feels a little bit confusing. I feel like I had like three sermons in this one sermon. So I'd say, you know, we're going to slow down a second. We're going to spend a whole week on what are helpful New Testament lenses. Like what does God's word say about how we should read dietary laws? What does God's word say about how we should read sexual ethics? What does God's word say about how we should read cleanliness laws? What does it say to us about how we engage the stories and the narratives in the poetry? I wanted to spend an entire sermon on that. But for today, it's enough to say a heart that wants to follow God asks, what do I do with that? Not, I don't have to do anything with that. One is about interpretation. The other one is about authority. Do you see yourself as standing over God's word, judging whether or not it's still relevant to your life? Or are you trying to put your life under God's word, saying, how do I actually follow God who loves me and cares for me in such a way that I actually engage with him and his heart? Jesus wants you to see that what God has always been saying isn't set aside. He actually says it's pointing to him. And the smallest part of it won't be set aside till all of it is over. Therefore, keep teaching it, keep living it, keep following it. There are questions of interpretation, but, but let's deal with the authority issues as well that keep us from wanting to actually deal with them. And friends, I think that's the place where we need to spend some time. We need to spend some time on why when we hear God's voice, do we quickly just dismiss it? And I realize there's lots of people in the room. Some of you are going like, Chris, that doesn't match my story at all. I'm actually reading God's word, asking and, and pleading and, and asking God to speak to me. I get that. There are people who are faithfully reading God's word. But even you, there are moments and there are passages and there are places of your life 
where you feel like that doesn't apply to you anymore. There's a lot of you that are really confused in the room, and you grew up believing something about the Bible, and now our culture has so discipled and trained you a certain way that you're super confused on how do you engage this. And even the shellfish sex thing has kind of been used in a way that you've lost confidence in God's Word. And so you follow Jesus, you, you love Him, but you're not sure what to do, and so you're tempted just to throw your hands up and say, man, I don't, I don't even care. And there's people in the room who, who you're actually antagonistic. You see it not just as confusing, but as, as oppressive or hostile. So, so I realize I'm speaking to a large room, and there's different ways that you engage this text. But, but the point is the same for all of us. What Jesus is saying is this is all pointing to me. And you should be asking how, not whether it does or not. Does that make sense? To have our hearts leaning in going, I don't understand this. Help me understand this rather than saying, I don't understand this. Therefore, it doesn't apply to me. One puts you as the authority. The other one puts you underneath God's authority. And so when it comes to interpretation and authority, I think they actually fit together. They actually inform each other a little bit. So, so the title of this sermon is like the, the scriptural authority in a world that's suspicious of authority. But I think if we can talk about interpretation just for a second longer, it'll help us realize why sometimes we are suspicious of God's word and put ourselves in authority over it. So, so let me just talk for a second about how to interpret the Old Testament. And let me give you a very simple concept that we'll unpack. I want you to read God's word through a relational lens. Jesus says, I came to fulfill all of this, right? That he is the lens by which we read the Old Testament. Don't read it as a requirements that you must meet so that God will please you or be pleased by you. Don't read it as things that are archaic. Read it as an invitation into a relationship. If you can put an interpretive lens on God's holy word that he's inviting you into a relationship with him, even in things that seem obscure or dated, then you can ask a different set of questions about how do I get to God through this text? And Jesus shows us that what he did relationally was stand in our place on the cross to die for us so that we could actually have a relationship with him, right? So we start with a sacrificing God who came to deal with our uncleanliness and our inability to keep the law he kept it perfectly for us. And that Jesus is saying, hey, read the Old Testament in light of me. So read it in light of what Christ has done, but read it as an invitation into a relationship, not as columns that you can kind of sort and organize into different categories. All of it is painting one beautiful picture. So the Psalms and their emotive crying out to God and the narratives of God's faithful story and the explicit commands and all the cleanliness stuff and even the sacrifices and festivals, all of those things are pointing you to how to have a relationship with God. I think it's exactly what Jesus is saying in verse 18 and 19. So therefore, don't let it pass away. None of it's fading because we need a relationship with God. We need to know how to engage in a relationship with God because when you see law in a relational context, it becomes like your wedding vows. And if you see that as a contract, that if someone's in breach of contract, then you get out of contract, I think it'll skew your entire marriage. Are, are wedding vows restrictive when you say, I will be faithful only to use it, close some doors? Absolutely. But are wedding vows oppressive? No. They're an invitation into a relationship that say, this is how we're going to experience flourishing and love and care and protection and safety. This is my commitment to you. Do they restrain me? Do they hold me back? Do they keep me in a space where I have to say no to some things? Absolutely. But are they oppressive? Oh, no, no, no. They frame for us and shape for us how we can actually go forward. So let me just say this. If that's actually the framework, then, then I don't think we have to start with the hardest text first. I think we can start with like the 95% of the Old Testament that easily makes sense to us and move from those spaces to the, the really difficult ones. There are some difficult texts. Again, whole denominations. There are entire like frameworks and uh, theologies and long conferences and thick, thick books engaging in how do we deal with some of those passages. But the large part of Scripture is really, really clear. So if we can start there, they're not like the basics, but they are the foundation by which we engage the hard text. So I thought about this. Um, I'm teaching Lucas how to drive. I already taught Elizabeth. She's amazing. Teaching Lucas now. If you've taught your kids how to drive, you know it's this fascinating experiment of like patience and courage. And as you engage with these things, you have a lot of faith and confidence, and yet you're also really, really nervous. And there's medical issues that result from that. You're trying to teach your kid how to engage with the car and be safe and be mindful, but not freak them out and make them nervous. So you have to give them confidence without making them overly confident. It's kind of, kind of pretty challenging. So kids who learn how to drive, 
Give your parents a break, man. They are really, really working at it. So when they're a little jittery and they can do that stuff, like give them, a, give them a pass, they are navigating lots of emotional things at one time. Okay, so as you're going to drive, you don't just throw your kid on the busiest street on the snowiest day in the most traffic in Kansas City, right? Where do you start? An empty parking lot where they can't hit anything for like a long, long time. And sometimes we can still leverage to get towards something on a curb. Whatever. We kind of give lots and lots and lots of space so we can work on Hey, this is what the brake does. This is what the gas does. And we're trying to work those things without getting vertigo on one end or whiplash on the other end. You're trying to learn gas and brakes in this parking lot. And then you're going to learn how to turn. You're going to learn how to go around some things. You're going to imagine there's a car there. There's no car there. Lower your stress. But we're going to imagine there's a car there. We're going to go around the car. You do that for quite a while, right? So your kid actually gets comfortable. And then you get them on a not busy street. And you start to work them into that space where they get a little more comfortable. And then you get them on a little bit busier street. And then you take like two weeks of a break. And then you get back in the car and you keep going a little bit. And you finally get them on the highway. But you don't start them in the snow in heavy traffic and say, well, you read the manual. Let's just see how you do. You don't, you don't do that, right? You give them these basics. Not because they're going to move past those basics, but those basics will become second nature to them. So they can't actually drive in the snow on busy streets because they have an understanding how brakes and gas and other cars and momentum and slowing down, how all that stuff actually works. Okay, our goal is to engage those tough passages well in the Old Testament, not to avoid them and skip them. We don't want to be the kind of church that doesn't deal with hard texts. But can we deal with those hard texts from a foundation of understanding who God is and what he's like and what he's said and what his character is like and what he's proved for us on the cross? Can we get some parking lot time with the nature and character of God that help us and train us to drive down some of those more narrow, difficult roads over time. And it's the same stuff. It's not like you forget brakes and gas and forget how to turn and forget momentum. You carry those things into those difficult situations. Hey, this is difficult. I should slow down. I should give more space to this next car. The conditions are such that I need to be a little bit more cautious. But it's the same stuff you learn in the parking lot that you're now applying on that busy, busy street. Can you imagine difficult texts like that busy street? You want to be able to go down. The goal is not to teach your kids how to take the long way around everything and never get on the highway. You actually want them to be able to get into traffic. God wants us to get into the spaces that feel difficult where the intersection of our culture and our own desires and his will come in places that feel really acute and they're, they're troubling and they're hard. But we don't have to start there. We, we can start with what does God's word say to us about his sacrifice for us? And what are all these animal sacrifices and grain sacrifices and offerings, what are those pointing to? Can that be breaks for us? Can we think about God keeping his promises and his covenant through these long, long narratives of walking with people for millennium to walk with a faithless people in faithful ways, to let that be breaks for us in the conversation? Can we learn how to steer and drive around the beauty of who God is and what he's done, right, so that we know his word is true because we've seen it proven true all over the parking lot of our life. So that when we get in traffic, we don't throw all that stuff out. We apply those things into that difficult situation. Because right, I think that helps us actually with our authority questions. When you just throw yourself into traffic, sometimes you feel overwhelmed, right? And actually with Lucas, I made the mistake thinking that we were going to be on a, on a country road. There wasn't going to be any traffic. And that country road turned into the highway. So the Joker's going 60 like his second time behind the wheel, kind of freaking out. And then it got dark. So now we're like, I'm, I'm halfway in though, right? I can't back out. So we're on these country roads. We're in the, in the thick of a highway in these spaces where I'm teaching him how to drive. And he's, he's pretty nervous. Not letting on that he's nervous. I'm pretty nervous because he's going really, really fast. And so the spaces where like actually put him in a spot where he it was over his head a little bit. And then he didn't want to drive for just a little bit. Which is understandable, right? So when you jump into a difficult text and you go like, I don't know, I was talking to a coworker and they use this passage and I walked away feeling really silly and insignificant and kind of foolish for believing God was good. It can feel like that highway. And it's not that you'll never be able to get on the highway, but you have to bring to the highway some other things that are foundational for how you relate to God so you can understand a text like that. So the authority questions, I think we question God's authority like we do everybody else's authority. One, because we think that they're not very wise. So think about your last Disney show or last movie or last cultural moment, right? The narrative is those who are the first generation beyond us are less wise, so we need to what? Create our own path. We know more. They're, they're not up with the times. We need to modernize this entire situation. So we have a suspicion about the wisdom of the authorities around us. 
We also think that the authorities around us are self-serving, that they're only putting these rules or regulations in place because they have an agenda behind it. They're trying to take something from us. They're trying to control us. They're trying to, to do something to keep the status quo. And so because of that, we're suspicious of authority. Thirdly, we have a sense of like that we just simply know better, like that we're wiser, we're smarter, we have more experience. The way we see the world actually is clearer than the way other people see the world. So there's this arrogance that, that we have. And fourthly, I think we are blind to the way that other agendas have shaped us. We encounter the world's agendas as just modern ideas or, or social commentary or, or updated technology rather than stopping and saying, you know, all those things have agendas behind them. And because we're unaware of those agendas, because we think we know better, because we're suspicious of the motives of authority, and because we think the authority is unwise, we tend just to resist authority all around us. So of course we bring that into God's word and to God. So now stop for a second and go to the cross where Jesus says, this is the moment where I'm showing you what love is like. And ask, is the wisdom of God on display in that moment? Where he connects millennium of history and teaching and examples and illustrations and images and failure and brokenness and promises and love all in one moment. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, and he proves himself to be wise. As Romans 3 says, he deals with both the unjust places of our life in a way that still makes him just and is the one who justifies us brilliantly. It's the only way it could have happened, and it all spring loads in that moment where we see God is actually brilliant in the way he is saving us. And we wonder, is he self-serving? And again, the cross is this moment where we say, no, no, he's not far from self-serving. He's the only one in history that's not ripping us off, holding us back, taking something from us, demanding something. He actually is the one who's giving to us. The way this covenant works is him laying down his life on our behalf so that we can actually see him as beautiful. We wonder if we know better. And we just look at our lives and go, oh, man, this has made a mess of all of my relationships of all the, my past and my future, the whole thing. Look at the world around us, and we don't actually know better. There's places where our, our suspicion of ourselves should increase and our suspicion of God should decrease because we continue to make choices that harm other people and harm ourselves. How many times have we pursued something thinking that was the road to flourishing, only to have it backfire and implode on us? And when it comes to this idea of being blind to other agendas, we stop and go, what is God's agenda for us? God has an agenda for you. Everyone has an agenda for you. God has an agenda for you. What's his agenda? It's not to sell you something. It's to give you something. It's not to take from you. It's actually to rescue you. It's not to oppress you. It's actually to set you free. It's to invite you into a relationship that he knows will be eternally satisfying. That's the way God moves towards you. So our questions with authority and all the things we normally bring as suspicion, the cross of Jesus actually begins to dismantle. So Jesus says, hey, all of this is pointing to me. I fulfill all of it. And he fulfills all of it in such a way that actually our, our mouths are open, gazing at the beauty of who God is, remembering what he's like and what he's come to do for us. I want to talk in the weeks to come about how you interpret some more, but if we can start with a relational lens, I think that relational lens of interpretation actually begins to erode that suspicion we have of God's authority in our life. And we can turn from saying, surely he doesn't mean that, to asking what does he mean by that? There's no way he could actually intend that to say, what is his intention behind that? Why might God be saying that? And how does Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross influence how I read that? I think that will radically change how you engage the text. The way my dad taught me not to smoke actually eroded trust I had in my dad. The way God is teaching us what it means to obey the word and obey the law and have the law be fulfilled actually increases our trust in God because he took it upon himself. He paid the penalty for all of it so we could actually have not just our sins atoned for, but have a relationship with God restored and renewed so we could experience what we long for most, which is the flourishing that he provides for us. I think that's what Jesus is saying, and it's why you don't set aside even small little parts of it or teach other people to do that. Don't relax the things that seem obscure. You ask, how does this even obscure thing point me to Christ's fulfillment of the law? So I want to stop there, and I want to lead us to communion from that place, right? Because communion is this beautiful easy explanation of what God's always been doing. It's the Passover meal kind of reinterpreted for us where we were in slavery and we needed deliverance and God had a sacrifice in a way that actually rescued us and redeemed us. It shows us that we needed a savior. We couldn't pay our own 
price of blood had to be shed. It shows us that we were unclean and we needed cleansing, and it's through his sacrificial death that that is actually accomplished. So for Christians, it is the meal we celebrate to remind us that Christ fulfilled all of the commands so I could be in relationship with him. It is the relational lens by which we see everything, including this passage in the Old Testament and the New. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, I invite you just to pray where you are. I don't mean to exclude you, right? Christ isn't meaning to exclude you. He's inviting you to come and trust him. But if you've not yet trusted him, this meal would be kind of meaningless. The, the meaning behind it, you wouldn't hold on to. So you shouldn't actually partake in the meal because it would be pointing to something hollow and shallow for you. Although I say that in a way to actually welcome you. If, if what I'm saying this morning or what you've been wrestling with the last couple of months with Jesus puts you in a spot where you're ready to trust him, then I would encourage you to take communion for the first time and let's talk about it after the service. I'd love to hear where you are with Jesus as you're wrestling with his sacrifice and his atonement. But, but for those who do follow Jesus, would you now turn to communion? If you didn't grab a cup, there's some here in the front. They're also just outside the back doors. Anna's going to play for us for a little bit just to give us some space. And remember the symbolism and what it's pointing to, that Christ fulfilled the sacrifice for us in his broken body and his shed blood to find a way to make us whole and clean at his expense so that we could be in a relationship. Let me just pray for us. And we'll take communion as an act of thanking him and remembering. Jesus, thank you for who you are, for what you did. Thanks for loving us. Thanks for rescuing us. Thanks for uh, your patience towards us. And thank you in this moment as we hold elements in our hands of your broken body and shed blood. Thanks for your sacrifice for us. Thanks that you died in our place in such a way that made it possible for us to be in a relationship. We worship you and we say, we say thank you. Meet us now. Stir our faith and give us confidence in you as we interpret the meaning of these things that we hold in our hands. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leeway Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.